this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This episode 143, we're recording on Thursday, February 4th, 2014. 2014? 2014. Did February you pop 4th, the DeLorean this morning? February 4th, 2016. Mr. Fusion is up and running. I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky. We're coming to you from BookRiot.com two years ago. <laughs> All right. I'm in my childhood bedroom right now, so it feels like 20 years ago. Two years ago, if you could buy book stock, book news stock, you would definitely be buying uh, a new Harper Lee novel at 100 to 1 prop (laughs) bet, right? You'd be buying that one. Mm -hmm. You'd be buying coloring books, saving the publishing industry in 2015 (laughs) at 5,000 to 1. I don't even know if you could get odds on that. Uh, Let's see what other prop, what other, what could could you get cheap? Um, uh, you, Amazon opening bookstores. Yeah, we'll get to that. We'll get to that for sure. Uh, probably you could have got pretty good odds on a retelling of Fifty Shades of Grey from Christian Grey's point of view. Oh, yeah. Lower than the 500 to 1, but you could have got, got, gotten good odds at that. Uh, let's see. Yeah, something like that. Those, those would be the big, you know, if you could go back and get Grey's Sports Almanac of the book world. Boy, that's a deep Back to the Future cut. I hope you all up there got that. <laughs> um, so we're back. We're here. Rebecca's in Kansas City. She's on her 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 roving podcast mic. If you if you're wondering why she sounds like she's not you know not quite as fulsome and uh, doesn't have the timbre of usual. Uh, what's what's going on? You're traveling. We're, we got company yeah, stuff going on. It's February. Gonna, it's February. It's cold here. We're going to be in sunny Los Angeles yeah, later this week. We will. Uh, I guess let's get to. You want to tell me about our first sponsor, and we get to our get to our I, the, the docket here. I sure do. Our first sponsor is Exposure by Dr. Chantel Tibbles. The full title is A Sociologist Explores Sex, Society, and Adult Entertainment. Um, Chantel Tibbles is a, a PhD sociologist, and the book is intended to expose readers to one of the most mysterious businesses and significant subcultures shaping our modern world, which of course is porn. Uh, it reflects our society. It is shaped by our society and nobody really talks about it in an academic way. Um, so Dr. Chantel Tibbles has spent her academic career researching this. She shares her adventures and her observations from over a decade studying the industry in order to give readers a nuanced look at a community that is simultaneously influential and reviled, also powerful and stigmatized. Um, and it also has an excellent cover of a half unpeeled banana, which I really enjoyed carrying with me on an airplane today. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So it's an insider's look at the porn industry, or at least kind of an insider. Um, Tibbles, you know, is a sociologist, but has spent a decade getting to know people who work in porn. Um, She attends the trade shows and the fan shows and conventions. She has been on many porn sets. She's spoken with actors and producers and really wants to understand how the industry works and what life is like for the people who make porn, but also to understand the place of pornography 
philosophy in contemporary American society, um, which, you know, if you know anything about the percentage of internet searches that are related to pornography, you know, it's undeniable that this is a large thing going on, a very large thing going on in our culture, but not a thing that is talked about very often. Yeah, what's the old joke? Society. The thing that get, moves technology forward is uh, NASA and porn. Those are yeah. things that do it. <laughs> right. Uh, and so she writes about that, about her experiences, um, about how difficult it was initially to be taken seriously in the, um, you know, professional, scientific and sociological community wanting to study something that people look down on and have many conflicting feelings about. So again, the book um, is called Exposure, A Sociologist Explores Sex, Society and Adult Entertainment. It's by Chantel Tibbles, and it is available on Amazon as an ebook for just 99 cents through February 15th. Um, so you can search for it. It's called Exposure on Amazon or click the link in the show notes and grab it for 99 cents through the 15th. Um, I'm stealing. We'll do a quick follow up, but I, I've got some off the docket for you after that. Tell uh, me about our first story. Our first story is. Well, it's fall. I mean, it's not. Yeah, you know, yeah. However, we would talk about this. Right? Uh, last week, we talked about what was going on with the Kirkus reviewers talking about uh, diversity or the lack thereof in their romance coverage. Uh, this week, Courtney Milan, who was the author that we mentioned last week, who left a uh, long and very thoughtful comment on that Kirkus post, wrote a post herself at her blog, CourtneyMilan.com, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes, where she breaks down the timeline of what happened, of the original post, of the comment that she left, the questions that she's raising, and lays out in a very uh, thoughtful and orderly fashion how this is an example of structural racism, um, that the Kirkus reviewer is uh, attempting to point out why she doesn't review uh, more romances by writers of color, um, but doesn't get to the place of trying to make change um, or trying to push her publication to make change. Um, And Milan just lays it out very nicely. Um, I think if you've ever wondered if this is really a problem um, in publishing, wondered what we ta- what we really mean when we're talking about structural or systemic racism, because we're not really talking about people who, right. who vocally believe or, you know, who explicitly believe or would vocally say, oh, I don't care about books by people of color, but how are the systems that we work in? Um, how, do, how are they stacked against writers of color? This lays that out very nicely. So we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Um, the RWA, which is the Romance Writers of America, also issued a statement this week that's basically a non-statement, but just says that you know the RWA does not... Uh, comment on or control or censure statements that are made by members of the organization or members of the board. They're not going to silence um, people simply because they do sit on the board. And Courtney Milan does sit on the board of RWA. So RWA is saying, we know that this is a thing that is going on and we don't really have a position on it, but we do have this diversity committee that looks at things and we care about this and we want to support the conversation. Uh, and that dovetailed into a piece uh, that was published at Reading While White this week. That's an interview with, um, where did her name go? Whose name? Oh, yeah, oh, I'm oh. sorry. I'm not looking at <laughs> The it, gatekeeper yeah. herself. Oh, yeah, Bobby. Um, oh, Kira Parrott, Oh, Kira, sure. sure. Um, who is, um, works for a school library journal, and she writes about how they came to realize that School Library Journal was really lacking in diversity in their reviewer stable, and then what they did to increase um, the representation of 
people of color and other marginalized groups among their reviewers and the books that are reviewed. And that's really an interesting look. Mm-hmm. Um, we talk about our job as editors at Book Riot to, um, to pay attention, to have a diverse staff um, and to cover diverse titles. And if you work for a publication like this or you're wondering what editors can do or how it works, that's also a great piece to take a look at. So all those links will be in the show notes um, as we yeah, continue worth to talk read. about uh, Milan's post, especially I thought um, yes. where she, she kind of lays it out uh, was especially good. Um, I got category bestseller tr- quiz for you from 2015. <gasps> oh, I knew it was going to be a quiz. You knew it. You knew it. Cause I, I can't tell you. I got to tell you. <laughs> it's not a nice thing to do to a girl yeah. when she doesn't even know what time. I know that's in, right. Jeff. Well, I, 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 I strike while the iron is hot as I say, uh, I, I got, I got a, I got a couple specific questions and then sort of a couple general things to just see. So um, this is this is these are all stats from Publishers Weekly okay. um, that I was looking through this week and I thought this was interesting. So facts and figures, twenty fifteen. These are broken down by category. Um, we did we did top of the line fiction, nonfiction, and YA. I think a while back. I think at so. At the end of the year, something like that. But this breaks it down a little more. So one I thought was interesting was science fiction. They break it out. Oh, okay. Um, and I thought, you know, some of these books we've talked about repeatedly on this show are a recommendation show, so that was interesting. So any guess what the number one science fiction title was of 2015? Uh, no. <laughs> well, it, it, it's not a new – well, was it a new – I don't think it was a new book in 2015, The Martian by Andy Weir. Oh, okay, of the movie, yeah. Right? I, I was not going to get there. I think it came out in 2014. It must have because they couldn't have made the movie the that book, fast. I think the book came out in 20 – it was either 2013 or I think it was January 2014 is my okay. sense of it now. Anyway, so movie tie-ins and the, the non-movie tie-in version all together sold just over a million copies. Good for Andy. Good here. for Andy. Good for And that's one of those self-publishing to success stories. I mean, it's an interesting way of thinking about self-publishing now a little bit. Gray, uh, Fifty Shades of Grey is the same kind of deal of using self-publishing as maybe like farm teams, you know, mm-hmm. to see what's out there and then find something that really takes off and turn it into something. Because yeah, yeah. neither Fifty Shades nor The Martian sell anything like this number of copies if they're only self-pub. They don't yeah. get made into it's- movies. I mean... Yeah, whatever. They definitely don't get made into movies. Yeah. It's a it's a great way to think about it for what publishing can do. I think if you're starting a self publishing career with the plan to get picked up by a big publisher, these are unicorns. Yes, right. That's like saying I'm going to go found Facebook. Right. right. You know, no, I'm serious. I'm not kidding. Like, <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah. I I totally agree. Yeah, yeah um, I'm going to start this website, and it's definitely going to be the next. Yeah, Facebook. it's going to be BuzzFeed, and we're going to raise five hundred million dollars. Um, okay, so that really those the movie tie-in and the regular were n- numbers one, two, and three. Okay, four and five were not new releases okay. in 2015. Any guesses? Though they 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 did come out in the the, the few years before. And they're science fiction. Science fiction. Right, were they also made into movies? I don't even Not know yet. why I'm asking that because I don't have titles in mind. Not yet. Um, I got nothing. Record. Something by John Scalzi. All right. Scalzi. So then, uh, number four, Ready Player One by our friend Ernie Klein. Not our friend, but you know, our the book we both. Like. Well, did you like that book? I don't know. I can't remember. I didn't. I, I didn't read. You didn't it. really like it. Okay, that's fine. I didn't that's read fine. it. Oh, you didn't um, read it. Even I worse. No, I'm it, like I didn't get to it before it came out. Yeah, yeah. And then yeah. it was too buzzy, so I waited, mm-hmm. and then. 
I think I concluded that I didn't know enough about video games to read it, so I haven't read it yet. I have it on audio, like tentatively earmarked for a future. Oh, it's supposed to be good on audio. Will Wheaton is the narrator. Yeah, I I was never going to get Ready Player One in this. I guess I just don't think of it as science fiction. Yeah, no, it it is. Uh, Number five, Station Eleven by Emily Mendel. Uh, Okay, great. Um, one hundred thirty-three thousand copies last year. Good for her. Number six, the only new book on the list. No, actually, I'm sorry. Number ten, Seven Evs, Seven Eves by Neil Stevenson Mm. was new last year. Uh, Star Wars Aftermath by our friend Chuck Wendig, number oh, six, nice. 103,000 copies. Good for Chuck. Then Jurassic Park um, by Michael Crichton, because I guess Jurassic World came out and people oh, picked it up. Oh, that makes me happy. That's great. Man in the High Castle by Philip K. Dick, I assume because of the Amazon the series. T- yeah, the show. And Ender's Game uh, by Orson Scott Card. The movie. The movie, but also just always sells well. Okay, yeah, so that was the I've, only one I was going to have you guess. All my friends, teenage kids, have to read Ender's Game Yeah, in they, school, they do. So. They do. Uh, we got Final Romance titles 104 1.4 million for gray is what ah, uh, yes. they have i don't have uh, sadly go set a watchman here um <laughs> uh girl on the train mm-hmm. 1.3 million copies last year just edged out by gray and we're what, talking print numbers only these right? are print yeah print print uh girl on the spider's web any sense how many what do you guess I'm going to go like... Number five in the fiction thrillers. Yeah, and it came out later in the year. Yeah, good, excellent point. I'm going to go, can I do a range? Sure. 900,000 to 1.1 million. No, 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 305,000. Oh, oh, okay. Interesting. All right. Uh, How about this? Uh, Between the World and Me. Mm. Taniasi Coates. Oh, yeah. Where is it? What's the... Uh, nonfiction biography, autobiography. It's number five in that category it's for number last year. five. Oh, man. And that gets lots of celebrity memoirs. I'm going to give it over a million? Uh, 319,000. What? The number one is the American Sniper movie tie-in at 851,000. Oh, come on, America. Then The Wright Brothers by David McCullough, 443. Your homeboy. <laughs> My boy. Unbroken by Lauren Hillenbrand. Um, mm. That book will just sell, I guess, forever. I guess the big numbers on the Hamilton biography are going to resurge for 2016. Yeah, uh, that's interesting. Yeah, good. Uh, let's see. Wild by Sheryl Stray, still cooking, 266,000. I Am Malala by... Malala Yousafzai? I've never said that I think that's how you say it. Uh, 270,000. Um, but, so, for things that weren't a movie, uh, basically Wright Brothers and then Between the World and Me. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. What I had one more for you. I was going to Man, gonna I want ebook numbers to be included in these two. That, this, yeah. It feels like, how can we possibly have industry reporting that doesn't include well, ebook numbers? you know, I mean, come on. It's, I mean, it's not the industry's fault. That's all Amazon's fault. I agree. They don't tell us. It's not I mean, cool. I guess the publishers could get together and record it on the back end, but that's, I don't know how you would do that. Uh, I was going to see, there's something else. Oh, yeah, all the Fifty Shades books are still, I mean, Fifty Shades is five of the top ten romance. Um, the number one best-selling romance of year that wasn't Fifty Shades is See Me by Nicholas Sparks, but he doesn't write romance, so I guess, I mean, I... <laughs> That's I don't know if you guys get that. He says he doesn't write romance. Um, two <laughs> you know what? I'm two not and sure four that, is, is Nicholas I'm, Sparks. I'm not sure you can actually classify Nicholas Sparks as romance because there's not always a happily ever H-E-A. after. H-E-A, yeah, that's interesting. Uh, Nora Roberts, eight and nine, and then The Rosie Project by Graham Simpson. Simpson? I've never Sim- said yeah. that. Simon Schuster, 158. Um, and then the last one, this is, you know, I, I've never paid much attention to this because I just didn't know. 
comics. Mm. Um, I guess these are graphic novels and trades. I don't think these are okay. individual issues. But the number one selling graphic novel or trade issue uh, last year was The Killing Joke by Alan Moore, which is a Batman slash Joker mm-hmm. com- book that came out a million years, like 20 years ago, if but not more. I think they're going to do it in one of the movies. Yeah, it's it's anyway, it's whatever. I, maybe um, it wasn't. The, it, there was a lot of press about the Killing Joke last year. I'm trying yeah. to come up with why this old I, book I, is. I, maybe I'll maybe I should have done some research because I thought I heard rumors about that too. Maybe, but anyway, um, any guesses? How many copies? Oh, do you have any sense? The number one. Oh, hmm. man, comics is so. It's so much bigger than we think it is. Um, two million. Think the other way. The other way. 70,000. Oh. Isn't that crazy? That is crazy. Number one, best-selling. Uh, let's see, Walking Dead, Compendiums 3 and 1 were number two and three. Very tight at the top, 66,000, 60,000. Uh, okay. Fun Home by Alison Bechdel, number four, 52,000. Uh, let's see what else is Saga Volume Four and Five. They're nine and ten on the list. Oh, that's some good news. Um, Forty-one thousand and thirty-eight thousand. Yeah, I mean, really, really interesting. Um, even the Marvel Civil War, that Mark Millar's original book, um, yeah. forty-six thousand. There's a movie coming out this year, so that number will probably be higher for next year. Um, but that's it. That is it. Can you believe that? Yeah, that's I was really shocked. Um, again, I, I didn't think it would touch the, you know, the numbers for the big categories, but it's, I mean, it wouldn't have made the top, t- the killing joke would not made the top 10. I guess it would have made the top 10 in science fiction. It would, it would have beat out yeah. Ender's game. I was every other about, category I'm looking at here, it wouldn't even made the top 10. I was thinking about how big the ticket sales are for the comic book movies. Yeah. I mean, I and... guess last year there wasn't a comic book movie. I, I don't think that tied specifically to a, a, a volume. Hmm. Um, because that's, that's the big, big Mar- Avengers old, Age of Ultron was Ultron, but not really, and it's an ancient comic. And anyway, I, I'm not sure. I, I'm curious <laughs> that you know Jessica Jones maybe wasn't on here or Daredevil that came out last year. We'll see over time if mm. people are really not picking those up because things get uh, made out of them. Anyway, I thought that was interesting to see some. That of is interesting. Ones. All right, what are we what are we doing next? Where you wanna what you want to go to? You want to go to the big do? story of the week? I the guess maybe we might story. As well. What's going on? Well, no one knows. It's it's. So here's what happened. Um, some guy who runs a bunch of malls shot his mouth off on an earnings call and said that he, he, he understood Amazon's plans that they were going to open three to 400 bookstores in the, and under, over some unit of time, unspecified unit of time. And the, the bookish internet kind of freaked out. And frankly, mm-hmm. some of the other like you know tech internet, retail yeah. internet really – thought this was fascinating. Yeah, this definitely, um, it popped up on places beyond just book coverage. Oh, yeah, coverage. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so we got, we had about a day of people going like, what, what? I, even I tweeted like, whoa. Uh, mm-hmm. And, but there wasn't any confirmed reports. Um, Amazon did sort of non-denial denials, blah, blah, blah. It seems to be now that the story is not quite as crazy as that, but still notable. Does that feel right to you? is kind of where we are with this. Yes. There's a nice piece in Recode. Um, we'll link to it in the show notes where they kind of, they're a technology um, site that part of Vox Media. Um, and basically they did some digging and they looked at hiring and some people, there is a, there is a, ser- the person who, uh, what's this guy's name? Um, Steve Kessel. Steve Kessel, who 
was the in charge of the original Kindle launch um, and some of the other big things Amazon has done is now in charge of their their physical store division. So that's not a joke that the Kindle guy moved over there in Amazon. Um, they are currently hiring right now for one additional store in La Jolla, California. Um, I think that's how you say that too. Boy, it's, I'm really showing my rheumatism here. I thought it was La Jolla. La Jolla, La Jolla, La Jolla, whatever it is. So, La Jolla. <laughs> <laughs> Let's Quas- just go with that. Quasadilla, California. Um, <laughs> make yourself a quesadilla. Make yourself a quesadilla. Uh, or San Diego, it says, somewhere in there. And there are no immediate plans open, three to 400 stores, but maybe a dozen or so in the next couple of years is the plan. Mm-hmm. And they may not just be bookstores. Yeah, they may that's... be physical stores that do you know other things, sell other items. And I don't know how they'll be organized, be general stores or what. But that's the other thing coming out here is some of these stores aren't going to just be like this Amazon Books thing we've talked about before that exists in Seattle right now. You know, the more I've been, we've been thinking, we talked about the, the Book Riot back channel, back and forth. You know, it's hard to imagine, like I said, if they're really going to sell the books at online prices, the stores almost by necessity have to lose money mm-hmm. um, because they're paying for, you know, the retail spaces and additional staffing and all the stuff that goes into running a retail store. But they're going to charge the same prices they charge at these giant warehouse hangers that's run by robots, you know, that you just don't have the same kind of overhead. Um, so I'm not sure what's going on here, to be honest. I don't have a great sense of it. You could think, I mean, there's the argument, um, our friend and coworker Clint said, you know, he sort of thinks that if they do open a whole bunch of bookstores, it'll be to sort of, they'll lose money on them, but they'll try to put a bunch of Barnes and Noble specifically out of business. Like mm-hmm. they use them as lost leaders, kind of like they've used books before to get into a market and kill some competition and then expand margins. But that's the thing with Amazon. They do a bunch of revenue, but never do any profit, blah, blah, blah. I guess I don't have a good sense of it. I can't, you know, again, I'm not Jeff Bezos. I'm not a world, you know, international titan of business. I don't have their kind of money, their kind of business know-how. But just sort of on a base logic situation, I don't have a good sense of why you might want to do this. Some, the, 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 there's a certain corner of the bookish internet that they want to go put independent bookstores out of business. My sense is, you know, independent bookstores are five to 7% of the books, the book sales in, in America. This seems to me like too much, too much, uh, too much sword for that problem to me. Yeah, I don't think this is an attack on indies. Yeah. Um, Do you have a, least, what, what's your gut? You know, Do you have any I've, gut or or logic I have arguments like a, here? I have a little logic. Yeah. About it, um, I don't think it's an attack on indie bookstores, but because, like you said, indie bookstores already pose very little threat to Amazon and the people who are devoted indie bookstore customers for reasons of caring about shopping locally and not wanting to support Amazon are going to be devoted. They already know that they're essentially paying, they're paying full price, which is to many, to many customers that comes off as paying a premium now um, to experience the indie bookstore thing and to continue to have indie bookstores in their neighborhoods when they could, everyone knows that you can go to Amazon and get deeply discounted titles. Like that's, Nothing new. I don't think that Amazon's going for that. I do think that Amazon might be swinging for the customers who don't have Endies in their neighborhoods, who live in either who live in book deserts yeah. or and so they have nowhere to browse or the Barnes and Noble customer 
who likes to browse in a store and then writes down their list of titles and goes home and orders Mm -hmm. from Amazon. You know, people do like that experience of browsing. We hear from booksellers, both in indies and who work for the chain stores who have the experience frequently of offering to order a title for a customer that's not in stock and the person saying, oh, it's cool, I'll just go buy it from Amazon. Mm -hmm. Or people, you know, basically using the bookstores to showroom um, with the plan all along of going home and buying it on Mm -hmm. Amazon for less than they can get it in the store. I think that might be a little of it. I've been kind of noodling and I, I don't know, maybe this has something to do with the dip in ebook sales and Amazon wanting to continue to hold on to print book sales um, and giving people a place to have that experience that they like of browsing in a bookstore, Mm -hmm. um, but getting the Amazon prices. The rest of it is kind of a mystery to me though. Um, unless the books just do continue to be a loss leader and they start to put other things in those stores. Like if you used all the big juicy Amazon data about what people who buy books also buy from Amazon, right? and then you stocked the stores with those things, like Mm -hmm. maybe it's not yoga mats like you can get at Barnes and Noble and kids games. Maybe it's like weirdly the book people buy Dyson vacuums and I'm just, you know, making stuff up. But if you did it, if you did it that way so that you got them in the door for the books and you could also sell them the same stuff they were going to go buy from Amazon later anyway. Mm -hmm. I think that's an interesting way of thinking about it is that there are some products that you want to hold in your hand before you mm-hmm. buy them to some degree. You know, one famously, the Fire Phone was a horrible disaster uh, yeah. in terms of sales. Maybe if there's a place you can go try a Kindle phone, you know, that be- not everyone has a Best Buy. They don't carry mm-hmm. them necessarily. You don't go to an Apple store, you can't get them. They need somewhere they can show them off. Their own Kindle devices. Um, you know, if they, the Amazon Echo, that thing where you talk to it, you know, like maybe they're going to do some of that kind of thing where right, you know, they yeah, want to show room like, for the products they want to sell. You can test out a Kindle at a Best Buy, but how many people go into Best Buys anymore? Yeah, and they don't carry the full line. And you know, the thing, the, 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 what percentage of the time is the Kindle actually powered on and right. charged? Like maybe 5% of the time <laughs> are the e-readers <laughs> functional and that space is going away. Um, that might, that might be, that might be a thing. I think the other thing to remember is sometimes in the grand narrative of Amazon versus the book world, there's some players that are forgotten about, and those are Costco and Target and Walmart mm-hmm. for book sales. And this could be, you know, and, you know, Barnes and Noble, of course, but, you know, Walmart's closing stores for the first time ever, they're closing a, a round of stores in America this year. And Amazon is probably, I mean, I, I can only guess it's public enemy number one, um, uh, Amazon and Walmart for physical. And I think mm-hmm. that could be another thing is like, don't go buy your books at Costco or Walmart or Target where there's like, you know, 40 titles maybe sitting out. You can come to Amazon if you're a value conscious customer and buy your print books there if you still like to look yeah, at them. And so, Amazon already employs an editorial team. Yes, who they do. Read yeah. a lot of books and do recommendations. Their best and, books of the month selections right. are always very good. And um, the, you know, Amazon editors picks of the year lists, those are always very good. I imagine that those drive a ton of sales on site. So you can imagine how like the Amazon editors pick shelves could get built out in mm-hmm. the store in addition to their booksellers um, selections. Publishers are certainly terrified of upsetting Amazon and they build a lot of their sort of policies and behaviors in reaction to that concern or mm-hmm. in reaction to wanting to keep Amazon happy. So perhaps, you know, you get 
if you agree to send your author on tour exclusively yeah. at a bunch of Amazon stores, if Amazon has a couple dozen stores nationwide and you send them on the Amazon tour, you've got a bunch of customers who will who know Amazon and potentially will go there. Um, and then Amazon could do interesting things with signed copies, um, with getting some of that author trust. Like that's that's an interesting situation to think about is what if author tours you know, cut back a little on if publishers did cut back on indies, like publishers don't want to upset their relationships with independent bookstores, but they really in the numbers sense could afford to mm -hmm. in a way that they couldn't afford to upset Amazon. So what it might look like for having bookstores uh, run book clubs and run author events um, that happen to be at Amazon stores would be that's an interesting question. The only, the only other piece of it that I think is interesting to from a why would Amazon do it is Maybe it's about branding and customer relationship. Um, Amazon, for all of its brutal efficiency, that makes it you know very easy to be a customer for Prime, and you get mm -hmm. there and the next day, and the prices are good, and all of that you, get, you can find almost everything you need. It is a cold company, um, and you can imagine that, especially among converting book buyers, there is still a contingent that even if they have sort of not the you know, publishing industry argument against Amazon. They don't like that they, you know, it's just sort of a website. They don't like that they don't pay sales tax in their local community. They don't like that they hire, They don't have people that they hire locally. And you could imagine that a, you walk into a bookstore and there's a bunch of books and there's Ella Fitzgerald playing and they've got Kindles and coffee. You know, some of the some of the vibe of what it feels like to be in a store and a bookstore, especially might make you feel more amenable to Amazon. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's that piece of it too. Is like along the long the talking points against Amazon have been, especially in the book industry. I'll keep it there. I know less about. I'm sure the electronics industry and everything else has their own their own um, airing of grievances to, to 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 say, but is they don't pay sales tax, they don't pay their workers, and they use books as a loss leader. Well, two of those three things kind of go away if you have three hundred if you have three hundred small bookstores, right? Right, and then you can sort of get around the books as a loss leader thing by staffing a bookstore filled with people who do yeah. love and care about books. And right. um, our friend Kevin used to be the books editor for Amazon's, mm -hmm. you know, online content is a passionate book person. You know, there's, it is not true that the people who run Amazon's book divisions, like uh, don't care those people, they do care about books. They love books and they read and uh, a store staffed with people, who read a lot and love books and who are good booksellers, you know, that's an interesting question. Like where would Amazon's store booksellers come from? Um, oh, they unless, can find them. They uh, can, yeah, no, yeah no, you're no, right. No, right. But like they're probably from Barnes and Noble, probably oh, yeah. from old borders, librarians, old borders, like closed books, a million stores, mm -hmm. former librarians. Like it's hard to imagine Amazon being successful in recruiting many independent booksellers who really are the rock stars of hand selling. They are better at it than anyone. Um, but my sense of the Amazon bookstores is they're not really about hand selling. Like they're kind of the opposite. They're like well, robot selling, right? Like they have data and they stock it and there's customer, you know, they have Well, but the, like, the job description that we yeah, have both seen true. for the, like who's going to run the La Hala, La Jolla. La Jala. Yeah. Um, someone please send us an email that's nice and tell us how to pronounce it. Yes, please. That. And please be gentle. Um, <laughs> um, for that says, you know, like you're not looking for, you know, you can be right about customers, but you're not looking for one size solutions to your customers that, that to me got at the, you can be a hand seller yeah. um, thing. And so maybe you have to say, um, maybe I'm being my cynical. friends in Barnes and Noble who are still, you know, boots on the ground booksellers there 
report, at least anecdotally, that their perception of a lot of what's going on with problems inside Barnes & Noble stores is that their Barnes & Noble has been hiring robot-y, tech-focused people who can sell nooks, mm -hmm. but that they fail to deliver the experience that customers want when they show up at the info desk and say, I just read The Martian, what else should I pick up that's like it? Um, or my mom is into, you know, knitting and mysteries, what should she read? Mm -hmm. um, so I think Amazon would be smart to hire people who can do that. Yeah, I, I guess the, the the central problem to me, unless there's something I don't understand about the business, like if they are going to open 12 to 50 to, in the fullness of time, several hundred primarily bookstores selling at online prices, that is not a money-making proposition. So they must be doing it for other reasons. Like that's where I'm starting from, I guess, right? Yeah, yeah. I Everything would bet else, gonna... you know, maybe they're just trying to get market share like they've always tried to do with books. Maybe they're, maybe it's brand equity. Maybe it's some other thing I don't understand. But yeah, it, they know as well as anyone, I would assume, that they're not going to make, this is not a profit-making endeavor. Yeah, I think people's relationships to Amazon are very utilitarian. And so this certainly could be a step toward getting customers to have warm, fuzzy feelings about Amazon, um, getting book people to have those. But I would bet that they will stock the stores with other items that they know book people buy mm -hmm. um, and try to build out that way and be data-driven and robotic in, in that way. You know, would you like this Dyson vacuum along with your new Nora Roberts? Um, Let's go to talk, talk about our friends over at Candlewick. Let's talk about Candlewick real quick. Yeah, we just want to give our pals at Candlewick a shout out. They are celebrating their 25th anniversary. And rather than throwing themselves a big party, or I don't know, maybe they're throwing themselves a big party also. Right. Um, but they are donating to Or at least a little cake, cupcakes. Yeah, and, I hope know, they're something. getting some donuts. Or yeah, something. something. Uh, we should send them donuts if But in lieu not. of a bash. Yes. They are donating 250,000 books to first book. That's an amazing number. I mean, yeah. it's an amazing, I mean, even if, even as we all know, publishers get a pretty good deal on the actual but print cost of a book, so but still books. probably that half is, million dollars worth of books. Easily. That is so many books. Um, uh, our first book was our charitable partner for 2015. Mm -hmm. um, we love them. We love Candlewick. They were our very first customers. That's right. They were. <laughs> long time, long time. I know that Raquel Full is disclosure. right yes. now. So we have, you know, appreciation for both sides of that equation. But 250,000 books to be donated, that is nothing to sneeze at. Candlewick does really diverse titles. Their fiction is very inclusive. Um, they're forward thinking and forward moving. And we just love to see publishers be generous like that. I have to say, I really love that this is not tied to any sort of weird uh, social media requirement or participation thing. Mm -hmm. They're just flat out donating 250,000 books. It's not like, we'll do it if you tweet enough. They're just doing it. Yeah. Um, so extra snaps to Candlewick. Good job and happy anniversary. I like the shade you threw there. <laughs> you know, I resisted the shade during the holiday <laughs> season when certain publishers that shall go unnamed mm -hmm. make donations that match whatever social sharing they get. I think you should just give. Right. Uh, so there's my built-in shade. Kudos to Candlewick for not calling it themselves out for shade. Yeah. Uh, congratulations, Candlewick, and heck of a job with that. Yeah, uh, really, an ongoing, an awesome. ongoing dribbles of Harry Potter news. Uh, rolling this week announced title. the names and locations of the other four or four more international wizarding schools. I don't really care too much about this, except, boy. For someone who doesn't want to write another Harry Potter novel, she's mm -hmm. writing Fantastic Beasts movies. 
She's, she wrote the, helped write the play, The Cursed Child. She continues to write for Pottermore. Man, she, do you think she likes, what, what is, I, I guess, other I than this news, what is like motive? Does she just can't get rid of it or she, she knows it's her brand or what is going on here? Both. I think she just can't quit the Harry Potter. Just and can't quit you. Yeah. Yeah, she just can't. And she has said that she loves being in that world. Um, she's also not a dumb lady, so oh, she no. does oh, recognize no. yes. that there is money to be made um, by continuing to have Harry Potter news and continuing to have people, you know, interested in what's going on in the world of Harry Potter. But um, I, I think that this is mainly she really likes it. Yeah, I, I, if I could give J.K. Rowling truth serum and ask her one question, it would be. Why do all this other stuff and not write another book? Mm. Like, because writers don't notice anything. I'm not of that camp of what, you know what I'm saying? Like, right, there's a right. certain, like, you know, George R. R. Martin can take whatever time he needs, whatever. But I think it's what's weird is there seems like a discontinuity between her continuing interest in the world yes. and the demand for what fans of the world want, which is another book. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I can't imagine everyone's like, I'd rather have a Fantastic Beast movie or a play. Rather than it doesn't even have to be Harry Potter eight. It could be just another novel set in the the Wizarding world, right? Like that's what people want, and yet she she just must not want to write a book for whatever reason. Yeah, it seems like she's happy to continue building out pieces of yeah. the universe. Like here are some more things about the schools, or like they just redid the um, sorting hat yes, quiz right. at Pottermore. Um, I don't know how much she had to do with that, but I'm sure that she was aware of it and. It feels to me like she's happy fleshing out where the characters. She's sort she's of creatively already... doodling. It seems to me. Yes, what this yeah, kind yeah. Of is. That's exactly it. it fe- that's what it, it feels like. She has the whole canvas, but she can't mm-hmm. resist going back to add in yeah. little details. But she doesn't want to tell new stories. Um, or maybe she's being really crafty and just waiting until demand is at a place where people are just can't wait any what, longer. What, it's going to get Although, higher than this? Like, I, don't know. I know. As I was saying that, I was like, wait, it's already as high right. as it can ever I know. I mean, I, whatever. Get, like, I mean, I guess with Star Wars, it shows you it can be 30 years, 15 years after the movie and it's the best, you know, I don't mm-hmm. know. Like that. that's what's interesting to me is like she seems to be more than – it seems to me more than financially invested. Um, mm-hmm. Like she's creatively invested in doing this stuff. And it's just so interesting to me that – the thing that got her where she is, the franchise, the medium that got her where she is, and the thing that still is the most hungered for, you know, a, a book yeah. is not the thing she seems – and she's she writes these adult novels. She writes under a pen name. So it's not about writing books. It's not that she doesn't mm-hmm. want to write a book. And she doesn't want to write these books, which I – it's just so – like, it's so interesting. Like, I don't think it's good or bad. Like, I would like – well, I'm not going to say I'd like another Harry Potter book as much as anybody because I know there are people out there that would do unspeakable horrors to get one. Uh, but I would read one. I would buy one. I'd mm-hmm. read it the first weekend. Like I'm, I'm a, oh, yes. the first, um, the first off the uh, onto the beach of the new Harry Potter. Yeah, book. I'm not. I'm not buying it at midnight. Yeah, I'm, I don't stay up till midnight for books sure. anymore. But I'm reading it. The Wait, first Wait, what's weekend. midnight? <laughs> midnight is that a name of a racehorse? Something like that. <laughs> Um, but yeah, the kids talk about it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Right. It's like Snapchat. Um, (laughs) so, so anyway, the, the on, that's sort of what gets me interested in is like how she's managing. I I wonder how sort of calculating she is. Like there's like several versions of her that I can imagine. There's one where she is like, 
I don't know, sort of the the godfather of her 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 brand, right? Mm-hmm. And so all of this is very calculated, and she's like, she can do a lot of stuff with very little effort, relatively speaking. Like she can write screenplay can't be easy, but it's mm-hmm. not spending six years writing a book and doing all that stuff. She can collaborate with writing a play. She can spend an afternoon naming a few wizarding schools, but she's sort of keeping the embers burning. Or there's the other version of it, which is it's not really calculating. It's all just sort of she's got this creative itch that she still needs to scratch a little without sort of doing, you know, without really um, addressing the real issue, which is to tell more bigger stories. So I'm not sure. Or there's and there's the whole spectrum in between that, which is probably somewhere in the middle. That is the open question for me, too. Like, is it does she have a 15 year plan that Harry Potter book eight is coming, you know, in like 2020? Right. Um, well, she, the way she talks about it, you don't seem so. Because she said with the Fantastic Beast, like, the studio had turned around on it. So she's like, mm-hmm. you know, he made a, made a great deal. He talked about it, really seemed to like it. And then with the play, she's like, she stumbled into these collaborators. So it, if it is a marionette, she's very sort of uh, drunken monkey disguising, <laughs> like, what's going on, which, well, you know, I, mean, I guess was what the Godfather does. But. Right, yeah, she could be – I wouldn't be surprised to learn that J.K. Rowling is – canny enough to sort of present it as I just have these ongoing creative urges and then down the line surprise I was here's Harry Potter book eight and I was secretly planning it all along and I was just you know dropping breadcrumbs along Mm, the path um, in the meantime but it's it does not look like it is being orchestrated it doesn't um, it doesn't feel that way which means probably it is because right. if you're the if you're that good <laughs> the greatest you know. trick the devil ever yeah, right yes right 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 <laughs> uh kaiser soze this biggest trick yeah um, the um i guess the most interesting thing about these wizarding schools um to talk about them specifically there's one called castel ubrushu in brazil yes thank you gizmodo for oh, the putting pronunciations in there's uh mahuta koro which is on um Minami iwajima in japan there's wagadu which is the largest it's located somewhere in africa and um, rolling was criticized for the fact that all of the other schools are identified in the materials as being in specific countries but wagadu didn't appear to be. Um, And of course, Africa is not just one country, it is many countries. Uh, But when people tweeted her about it, she replied and said that Wagadu takes students from all over Africa, but it is in Uganda. So remains to be determined or probably never known whether she overlooked that fact mm. um, and just was like, Africa, that's CYA a thing. after the fact, yeah. Or whether she intended it to be in Uganda all along and somehow left that out of the description. But this is an ongoing problem in the way that creative people and people in the world in general understand well, uh, Africa. Yeah. And Rowling's not um, great about it. Of her many yeah, strengths, she's, not. she's there, not great. There about... have been many you know, valid criticisms of her treatment of uh, characters of color and her addressing of race or her not addressing mm-hmm. of race. Um, so that was a criticism leveled at her this week and validly so. And then finally, there's, there's Ilvermorny, which is located uh, in North America. Mm-hmm. Um, and we will get... We're very nervous about this one, uh, yeah. the American one, because apparently it's going to feature in some level native magic, Native Americans. Mm-hmm. Already the people I follow and, and pay attention to and representation of Native American people are very nervous. And yes. I would, I would, I would... 
think they're very right to be I'm nervous I myself. Would, I would honest. think so too. Um, um, it's one thing it's, for an American to try to do it. It's a, it's a different thing entirely for even you know a British person to try to to, to navigate the <laughs> very fraught waters. Well, I would not put you know much confidence in like your average American. Oh no, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, to, exactly. To do indigenous magic very well or respectfully. So let's hope she's got some good. Yeah, I hope she has someone she's there. asking or someone who's like, hey, J.K. Right. Uh, maybe not so much with the totem poles <laughs> and the feathered headdresses. JK, anymore. what's good? Yeah. Uh, let's. We're going to have to wrap up here. So you found this. I didn't see this. I thought this was very interesting. This idea, HarperCollins, n- unsurprisingly, in the experimenting with how to do things um, mm-hmm. uh, trick up its sleeve, is experimenting with audio first. Um, and this is a novel I've never heard of, uh, but I think it's a debut. Yeah, debut yes. fiction. By and Julia Claiborne Johnson. It's called Be Frank With Me. And this is a big deal to HarperCollins. My friends there were like, everybody's talking about Be Frank With Me. Oh, is that true? It's very interesting. Um, they say the the comps are Curious Instance of the Dog in the Nighttime and Where'd You Go, Bernadette, which is a difficult, that's a 710 split. Mm-hmm. That's a and little difficult to do. Kirkus Review called it The Curious Incident of Where'd You Go, Salinger. Very interesting. Um and I guess they get a free ad spot for it, right, from yeah. us right there. So mm-hmm. g- good, you know, well done. <laughs> but the audio first, before print and uh, uh, yeah, you know, ebook, it's... and it's available right now in the hardcover launch. I'm sorry, well, it's already happened. So the hardcover came out already, but it was like a week before, two weeks before you mm-hmm. could get it on audio. Yeah. So why do this? Well, I think they're. I don't know. Okay. I think. Well, I think that. Um, using ebooks to drive demand for print books is not a thing that ever worked. Um, I never saw publishers really do an ebook edition first, but there was a lot of like feeling for a while that um, readers really would think of print and e differently and readers who read an ebook but really liked it would go out and buy that book in print. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have some of those readers in our stable of contributors. We certainly have some of those readers in the Book Riot community who do that, but I think they are an outlier. Um, People are reading a book once unless they really, really, really love it and they feel the need to like have a copy of it in their hands. And the more familiar we get with digital technology and the more comfortable people get with e-reading, the less likely it is that they're going to read an e-book and love it and just have to have it in print also. So maybe this is uh, audio and print are different enough that we can drive some double dipping. Hmm. Maybe it's just this is a title that we think is really interesting and we want to get people on the hook for it, or it's particularly good on audio. Where'd you go, Bernadette? Was excellent um, hmm. on audio, and so maybe to get people to experience the book in its optimal format, maybe they've decided it's audio and that's the way they're going. I don't know. Audio is surging, and oh, maybe surging. maybe it was just an experiment. <laughs> Of like what happens if we put this out in audio first? It's interesting to do it with a debut. Like I would think, yeah, you would do it with a really high in demand title from a writer that everybody loves, right? Because you get see, a premium, right? I think that's the other thing is right. that audiobooks are more expensive, a lot more expensive, and they don't. Right. Amazon. This is one of those situations where Amazon, which owns Audible, which is as we've said before, they sponsored the show, and it's true. What's in the copy that we read? They are the dominant player in audiobooks, mm-hmm. and notice when you're the dominant player. Well, prices don't seem to get slashed as badly, you know, like right. they, they do a heck of a job keeping the price of audiobooks high, um, which anymore, I mean, it, it was back in the day when you'd buy 25 CDs. Mm-hmm. And I think I sort of understood why it was more expensive. But right. now it's, it's, you know, it's a 100 megabyte file, like our podcast is 50 megabyte, you know, like, mm-hmm. 
it's it basically the cost of delivery is very small. I know it takes additional um, cost to produce, but I just have a very difficult time to believe it's that much. To be honest, I've actually looked into some of the yeah. prices for for building it out. So anyway, long story short, the prices are high and the margins are high, and they make money. So if they think maybe they can get some people who might buy on ebook or print, even through Amazon, to shell out instead for an audiobook, mm-hmm. they make more money. Yep, it's um, really interesting. I'm very curious about why I do it with a relatively unknown title. Here's the part you're not going to like. Oh, you know, you don't like this. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I was wrong. I thought it was just through HarperCollins' e-commerce site. You can. Uh, it, it was they they link directly to Audible. Um, my mistake. So yeah, the the even the member price for Be Frank with Me is fourteen fifty five on Audible. Mm-hmm. The regular price is twenty bucks, which huh. is expensive. I mean, that yep. is expensive. You might as well buy the hardcover. You might as well. You might as well. So it, that's interesting. And I, I wonder if the other thing that you can release early is because you can. Like since there are fewer outlets for audiobooks, you don't have to coordinate, you know, with like Target and Amazon and all the oh, independent bookstores. Indie bookstores book getting mad at you. Yeah, and like you know, you're not any. Yeah, exactly. Indie bookstores getting mad with you with like you let it, let it go. Like you just sort of turn on the file, right? Yeah. Um, and it, let's say it's only available early on Audible. Like, who's going to get mad at you? Like, who has any leverage to say, "Oh, you didn't let it be early with us, so we're going to get pissed off"? Like, who? I don't even know. Like Barnes and Noble does some audiobooks, Downpour does some audiobooks, like but it's sort of like Audible, it's like Snow White and the Seven Dwarves with Audible. Like mm-hmm. it's so big that um you know, you can kind of do stuff like this. So I think it's interesting. Like I think your point to get the super fans early is super interesting. Um but with a debut novel it seems yeah, hard. Yeah, it's it's not the same. Maybe it's... it was just a, a stunt to get some free publicity for this title. Maybe so. Because we did, do, and we, t- we talked about it. Yeah, I mean, and they do want to be driving interest in this title yeah. from all the things that I have heard. So right. interesting. I thought that was anyway, interesting. maybe I'll get it with my next Audible credit. Uh, yeah, if anyone if out anyone up there reads about. it, I'd like to know. Because I, I have to admit, they, they've done a hell of a job blurbing, like sort yeah. of putting their comps together. Uh, we got one more sponsor to do, Casper. Casper Mattresses. So thing, you know, audiobooks used to be terrible to buy in person because you had to get like 50 audiobooks for The Stand by Stephen King or something like that. What's still terrible to buy in Pertron is a mattress. Mm-hmm. And a couple reasons for this. One, it's it's it. I don't know. I don't know why this happened. Like, why is it that buying a mattress is like going to buy a car, where like you've got to negotiate? There's like all these different models and upselling, and the the mattress salespeople like it feels like you're you're just being conned the whole time. Um, it's not like this with other like sofas and TVs anyway. So that's one thing, you know, the other thing is that you, you go to a, a mattress place and there's like a, a hundred mattresses to try. You've been walking around for 30 minutes. Of course, all the mattresses feel good because you're tired. Right. You know, that's why you don't, you don't go to the grocery store. <laughs> you're just so happy. You, yeah. You don't go to the grocery store hungry and you don't go to the, the mattress store tired, which we're all tired. So there you go. Don't go. Uh, QED. Um, so what Casper does, they make obsessively engineered American-made mattress at a shockingly fair price for the quality of mattress you get. You spend about a third of your life sleeping, I wish. But anyway, (laughs) enough that it matters. You should have a good mattress, right? I think you should have good coffee, a good mattress, and you should have a good razor blade. Those are the three you got to have. Oh, and if you uh, are a bra-wearing type, you should have a good bra. A good bra, yes. Um, I, I hear that's a wonderful thing to have. Um, two, so they use two t- technologies. 
Latex foam and memory foam. So some of you've heard that you know some some other premium mattresses use one or the other. They use them both. It's called a hybrid, like in Jurassic Park. We know how that turns out. Um, just the right bounce, no matter how you sleep. A risk-free trial and return policy. So this is the thing they know. It sucks to go buy a mattress in the store, but at least you you know you know what it's sort of going to feel like. Here they deliver it straight to you, and you get a hundred day free trial. They'll pick nice. it back up at no cost if you're not happy. Um, maybe, and that's the other thing about going to the store. Are you going to lay there for 10 minutes while the mattress sales guys are like, you know, walking around? Yes. No, I mean, I guess you can t- you take your shoes off, get comfy. You can, you know, get some night's sleep. You actually get to sleep on it. Uh, you know, $500 for a twin size mattress and nine fifty for a king size mattress. So if you've been premium mattress shopping, you know, those are great prices. And here's the other deal. You can get $50 towards any mattress purchase going to casper.com slash riot and using the code riot so that knows you get your 50 bucks off also they know you came from us if you're in the market for a mattress um a few years ago michelle and i we we sprung for a good mattress and have never gone back uh you know after spending many years on futons which no one needs why why do we do that to ourselves um (laughs) so go check out casper.com slash riot see if you're in the market or someone you know is in the market for a good mattress or when you know when it's time to get a new mattress Consider, you know, investing a little bit of money in there. Uh, thanks so much to Casper for sponsoring this show. Yeah, we um, stayed in an Airbnb, Bob and I did recently, that was ah. up in the mountains and would be a hard place to get oh, a lot of, like, also, a big mattress up to. And the bed was super comfortable, and I definitely took the sheets off and checked, and it was a Casper. That's really, well, that's, I mean, that's the other thing, is getting the, even if you buy a mattress at the street, you got to get home, right? You gotta, yeah. Even if they deliver, you got to do it, blah, 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 anything. Um, all right, let's do a little stat corner. We haven't done stat corner. Well, I guess we did sales. Mm-hmm. You found this link about, a uh, link about, Observing readers in their natural habitat, digital book world did a study of um, reading reading speed, speed, basically, times of day. Um, And these stats are from, let's see, who is this from? Uh, I can't, I cannot find it right now. Um, When people read the fastest. Oh, it's Jelly Books. Jelly Books, yes. And they've done some stats like this before. Mm-hmm. They're a digital book reading service, and they you know, can basically tell by people turning pages how fast they're reading. What, what's, does anything jump out to you on this study? Uh, you know, the very first graph that they show shows reading times, and yep. it also shows frequent interruptions, mm-hmm. and that people are not consuming ebooks in one continuous session. So they have like seven sessions that lasted about 20 minutes without interruption, but nobody was reading for more than 45 minutes without interruption. And many had shorter sessions that lasted five to 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. Um, But people are dipping into their book and then poking out to Facebook or Twitter, um, you know, dipping back into their ebook, which is a is a thing that happens. Um, it took the median reader about seven days to finish this particular book that they're using yes. uh, as the example. And they say that still makes it a high velocity title. Um, and then, you know, a high velocity book is often completed by 70% or more of readers. So the abandon rate uh, is interesting too. And they're kind of getting at how much, I think actually the most interesting stuff in this study is actually the stuff that's not on the page, but how much data is available? Yeah. To, is Never available had this before. About Never. how people read and when they read and when they drop out of a book that if you wanted to do the publishing version of what Netflix has done with some of its original yeah. series and look at 
how many episodes into House of Cards people make it before they bail or how many they watch in a row or which episodes are recommended the most, that kind of thing, and then engineer future episodes around that. You could attempt to do that with publishing. You could try to pace things in a way that will engage readers. You could look at like people who pick up this mystery, read the first seven chapters in their first session, and then they fall off. So if we were going to redo that book, how could we keep the tension going? Um, we haven't really seen, at least in a way that a publisher has acknowledged, um, a book sort of engineered to ring these bells or to respond to reader habits. That, But now we have oodles of data. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interestingly, they say that the typical book, about half the readers don't finish it. Um, mm-hmm. But they, what they call a very engaging or high velocity title, more than 70% will finish the book, which doesn't seem like a huge spread to me. Uh, that, you know, the sort of the difference between what they consider an overperforming book is 70% and the average is, is 50%. I don't know. I would have expected a bigger spread there in mm. completion rates. Um, it, very, really interesting. I mean, people get interrupted a lot. I'm not, I'm not, since we don't have data from, say, 1971, right, when everyone was reading in print, mm-hmm. I would, and we didn't have the internet and social media and our smartphones, I would imagine you'd get longer spreads of reading. On the other hand, Ebooks for me, use myself as example because I'm a narcissist. You know, I have an e- I have my Agatha Christie book on my phone at all times, mm-hmm. so I don't need you know I don't need to find a good chunk of time to sit down and read for a couple hours. If I have five or ten minutes, um, you know, I'll, I'll pound out uh, a few pages or something like that. Same yep. similar with audiobooks as well. Um, so anyway, there's a link to the show notes. There's quite a bit of data here in the charts. To be honest with you, while you're doing a podcast, are a little hard to dive into because it's a little difficult to see what's mm-hmm. going on. Um, but if you're interested in this, you can you can spend some time with it there. And I think we got to wrap up our show. Speaking speaking think, of running out of time, I think that's it this week. So um, we got to thank again Exposure by Dr. Chantel Tibbles. You can grab it as an ebook for 99 cents on Amazon through February 15th and Casper mattresses. Of course. Yeah. Uh, Amanda's going to be with me next week. Uh, Rebecca's going to be out traveling for work and stuff. So um, we'll, we'll save all the really, really uh, annoying, awkward stuff uh, for Talk about for Amanda. a lot of classics. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, right. right. Um, so th- anyway, you can always find show notes to this and back episodes of the Book Riot Podcast at bookriot.com slash podcast. You can follow us on Twitter. I'm at that Jeff O'Neill, O-N-E-A-L. She's got Rebecca Shinsky, S-C-H-I-N-S-K-Y. And we'll talk to you next week. Have a good one. <laughs>